Have you ever made a goal in your life? You're like, yeah, we did that in January, right? Did it work out for you? Show of hands, how many of you are still uh, keeping up with your, your goals at the beginning of the year? All right, good. Uh, let me put my hand down. All right. We, we make lots of goals, don't we? We make lots of goals. We can make goals uh, having to do with uh, our job. Maybe uh, if you, whether you own a business or whether you work for somebody else, you probably have goals that are either set by yourself or set by uh, your uh, uh, direct supervisor, your boss. Uh, so we make goals that we're, maybe we make goals in our family. You say, as a family, we want to uh, make sure that we're, um, I don't know, this is not good. I don't have a family goal. <laughs> we want to we make sure that we're eating healthier, right? We'll, kind of, we'll combine that with health goals, right? How, how many of us have set a health goal? Yeah, uh, I, I know. Yep, we all have. And if you're like me, you've probably failed many times <laughs> at your health goal. Uh, but uh, there's, there's a, a simple uh, statement. I forget what it is off the top of my head. But there's, there's a, a way that you're supposed to set goals. It's a, it's a, I think it's called SMART, Right? You're supposed to set SMART goals. Anybody know what those, those letters in that acronym stand for? What is it? Specific, Specific measurable, achievable, attainable, and it starts with a T. Time constraint, right? It has to be a specific time. You have to give it an endpoint, right? So we want to we want to create goals that are specific. So we why why do they need to be specific? I know it's Sunday morning. You can talk. What? You don't know what to do or you don't know if you've reached it, right? If you don't know specifically what the goal is, you don't know whether you've reached it or not, right? So it's specific, attainable, right? Something that we know that we can achieve, right? You don't want to create some goal that you're like, <laughs> I'm never going to get there, but I needed a goal, so, you know, there's my goal. Uh, you, want, you don't want to shoot for something that you can't make, so attainable. And then what was the R? What? Relevant, right? It's something that, that makes sense for you. It would not make sense for me to try to set a goal of dropping my golf score because I haven't golfed in four years, right? So that's not, an, that's not a, that's not a uh, uh, relative, thank you, a relative goal. And then time constrained, right? We, have, we want it to be done at a specific time, all right? If it's like, for example, I'll, uh, I'll pat myself on the back here. I finally set a goal to lose weight. And I don't know if you can tell, but uh, um, I'm, I am sticking with my goal. I made, I made a decision. I said, I'm not going to have any uh, sweets. I'm not going to have, you know, the breads and the pastas, the carbs and things like that. I'm not going to have any of that until my favorite day of the year, Thanksgiving. All right, Thanksgiving. I have a list that I am keeping for my wife that has things such as donuts, uh, cinnamon rolls, uh, obviously turkey, cheesy potatoes, rolls, um, and of course, my absolute favorite, pecan pie with ice cream. Um, so I, I, have, I have my goal in place. It has been attainable so far. It is extremely relevant to me uh, because I needed to lose a good bit of weight. And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm on track, and I'm making it towards my goal, and I'm, and I'm really excited. Um, but if you, don't, if you don't set goals in that way, it's hard for you to meet your goal, is it not? It's hard for you to, to meet your goal. In fact, uh, recently we had uh, a meeting at work and one of the things that was talked about was our bonus structure that is changing. Uh, we had a guaranteed bonus structure and now they're doing away with it, and which, but they're bringing in benefits, so that's helpful. Um, but, it, you know, it's kind of a bit of a rocking the boat for everybody. But they said, well, we still have a bonus structure and, and we, still have, we still have a way for you to, to earn extra, you know, for people that we feel have gone above and beyond, you know, they, they will receive bonuses periodically. And so naturally my question was, uh, in, you know, what's the criteria for that, you know? And the answer was, well, we don't have specific criteria. It's just, you know, kind of how we feel. <laughs> how we feel you've done in comparison to the, to, to, you know, how, how the company is done. And it's like, if you have a goal like that, how do you attain a goal that you don't know what the end is supposed to look like? How am I supposed to strive for a bonus that I don't know how I'm supposed to get it? That doesn't make much sense, right? 
Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to look at Abram, who kind of has one of those goals. He's got a destination that he doesn't know about. He's got some promises that, you know, he doesn't really necessarily have any idea of will come true or not, but yet he's going to act on those. All right, and just like me at work, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to strive. I'm going to, work, I'm going to work hard to try to produce something that looks like above and beyond, <laughs> at least in my definition, right? Abram is going to follow after this goal that is a little nebulous. It's a little bit hard to understand. It's a little bit, you know, there's no, it's, a, it's not a smart goal, but it is a God goal. And so he's going to follow after that. And I want, to, I want to take a look at that this morning. But before we get into that, I think it's good for us to go back and look at the end of chapter 11 to kind of get introduced to Abram, where he is, why he is there, and what's going on in his life. So as I said earlier, we're going to kind of just work through these verses and, uh, and get an understanding of, of the passage. And then I have a couple of things I want to, I want to bring up afterwards. So here we're at the beginning of chapter 11, verse 27, we'll read, uh, we'll read through the end of chapter 11 as a group, and then we'll um, take a look at it in further detail. So chapter, 20, or chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives, and, a- and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son's Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So here at the end of chapter 11, we, we meet a man by the name of Terah. And who is he a descendant of? Does anybody know? Shem, right? He's a descendant of Shem. And Shem was the, uh, the blessed line, right? He was the one through which we know, Eric reminded us last week, we know that Christ is going to come. So Terah is a descendant of Shen. And um, he has these three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And it's interesting, you know, it says here that Haran died. It says in the presence of his father, right? He died in the presence of his father. So we don't know how, how old Haran, Haran was. These names are going to be fun this morning, I'm just telling you. We don't know how old Haran was necessarily, but he, he was old enough to be married. He had uh, a son named, anybody catch it? Lot, right? We had a son named Lot. That's where Lot comes from. It sounds like he had two daughters, uh, one of which became Nahor's wife. And so we've got these three sons and Haran dies. Obviously, this is not the first time that a son has died. We dealt with that in, in Genesis chapter 4, right, with, uh, with Abel. He was murdered. So this is not the first time that a child has died, that a child has died before a parent. Uh, it's very possible that was somewhat common uh, as we've looked at the, the wickedness before the flood. But it's interesting that the Bible points that out. And, and there's a couple reasons, I think. One is so that we know why Lot is traveling with Abram later on, because his father's dead. Um, but then also, I think in some sense, this may be one of the catalysts that drove Terah to leave Ur. Now, how many of you are familiar with the word Chaldeans? Yes. Well, who are the Chaldeans? Some of the priests. They were, some of them were priests, not of God. Anybody else? What? Babylonians, yes. Yes, so we're talking, we're talking the eastern side of, and southeastern side of Mesopotamia, all right? So if you know where the Red Sea comes in, you've got the Tigris and the Euphrates that split off of that. They're kind of right and down in there in that area, all right? 
Typically, that's where most people think that Ur was. Ur was somewhat near Babylon. All right? So we're talking about these people who eventually are going to, yeah, someday come in and take Daniel from, uh, from Jerusalem. So just kind of, so you kind of get in your minds where some of these places are, all right? So we've got Ur of the Chaldeans. That's generally where it is. Um, obviously, I'm not trying to, you know, give you a history lesson or a geography, geography lesson this morning, but, you know, just keep these things in your mind as you think about what, what's going on. So the people that are mentioned here at the end of this chapter, um, you know, we, a lot of times we look at, we look at Abram, and we know that we've, we're going to have a lot of information about Abram and Abraham as he, his name gets changed over the coming weeks as we study through Genesis. But don't forget about these names because these names are going to come up later on in the story as well. All right? So I've, as you go through and as you're reading Scripture, don't just bypass things that you don't think are relevant. Think about it. Understand it and know what's going on. All right? So we've got Terah is the father of Abram. And we've got his three sons, Haran, who died, and then the other two. So we've got the other two are married. Obviously, Abram is married to Sarai, who eventually will become Sarah. Nahor is married to Milcah, uh, presumably his niece. And we're told of a very, a very specific thing about Sarai. What is that? She's barren, Right? For, for the kids in here, does anybody know what the word barren means? Yes. Uh, she cannot right, she can't have children, right? So here's Abram and his wife Sarai, she can't have children. And then we've got Lot, who is Haran's son, Haran's dead. And, uh, and it's interesting, we see here Terah, after Haran dies, he takes Lot <coughs> and he takes Abram, and he takes Sarai, and he leaves. And where is he going? Where is he headed? Anybody catch it? Canaan, right? He's going to Canaan. So Terah takes Lot and, and Abram and Sarai and goes to Canaan, but he doesn't take Nahor. Why? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us why. Maybe, you know, there was something with the fact that because uh, Abram and Sarai were, were barren, you know, maybe there was some agreement with them and, you know, taking care of Lot or something like that. I don't, I don't know. That's just a pure assumption on my part. Uh, but for some reason, Terah leaves Ur and heads towards Canaan. And he takes with him Lot, his grandson. He takes with him Abram and he takes Sarai. Now, if you look at a map, You've got, I'll try to do it the way you would look at it, right? So we've got the Red Sea down here, right? And the, the river's coming this way, and Ur somewhere around in here, okay? And then over here, we've got the land of Canaan, eventually Israel, right? In the Mediterranean Sea, everybody got that? All right, I'm not, I'm not cool enough to put maps up like Eric did. All right, so Haran, so here's Canaan. Haran is up here, the city, all right? So... Why in the world would they go all the way around like that? Anybody know? In, in our invisible map? What's here? Desert. desert, right? Yeah, it's just desert. And so the natural trade routes were up and around like that. There was a King's Highway, which was a little bit less of a curve, but they went up a little bit farther to Heron. So uh, Tara, I told you these names were going to get fun. Tara takes these three, and he decides he's going to go to Canaan. Why? Why would Terah go to Canaan? Is there, is there anything in, in this passage that says why he was going to go to Canaan? No, there isn't. He just says, it just says, and he took his son, and Lot, the son of Aaron, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and they went forth from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. All right, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. All right, so his mindset was to go to Canaan. But why? Uh, many commentaries, it's interesting, many commentaries put forth the idea that either God called Terah 
to go to Canaan, which is interesting because there's nothing in Scripture that says that, or that God called Abram in Ur, in Ur, and Abram probably told his father that, you know, God had called him, and so Terah was like, okay, let's go, and, and so they went. That's, interestingly enough, kind of most of the commentaries that you read are going to say something similar to that. Um, and they do that based on a couple passages, and I want, I want to go ahead and address that in case you hear someone say something like that, because, uh, because when we look at Scripture, we have to take Scripture what it says, right? We can't take Scripture as, as what we think might have happened. We have to take Scripture at what it says and accept that as the truth. So the two main passages they point to are Nehemiah 9, 7, and 8, and that says, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. That says, I'm sorry, yeah, 9, 7, and 8. That says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abram. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of, Can of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are, excuse me, righteous. So that's one of the things that they point to. It says that you brought um, him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Joshua 24, 2 through 3 also mentions Terah. And it says, And Joshua said to the, all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abram from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. So what they do is they take those two passages, they kind of make an assumption that because it says that God take him, took him out of Ur, that that must have been where he was originally called. The Bible doesn't say that, right? Is that what either of those passages said? Did they say that I called him? No. Now, was God part of what drove these people out of Ur? Absolutely. I think those two passages make it perfectly clear. It was God who was working in whatever the circumstances were in the life of Terah to cause them to leave. All of it is God's working. But we don't see anything in Scripture where God called Abram from Ur. Did he get him out of Ur? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that's what those passages are talking about. There's no doubt that God providentially moved Abram from Ur to Haran. However, we must be very careful to not allow our assumptions to drive our theology or our understanding of Scripture. So Scripture's not clear why Terah left. As I mentioned before, the, part of it may have been uh, the fact that his, uh, that his son had died. Maybe he wanted to get away from that area just as the reminder of his son uh, who had passed away. Maybe that was one of the reasons he, he left. Um, it's interesting, you go through and you look at some of the, the historical documents. Um, you look at uh, Josephus, no, no, it's not Josephus, who is it? Um, I just forgot off the top of my head. Anyway, some of the, some of the old historical writers and in, in some of the, the uh, Israeli texts give us some interesting con ideas about why Terah would have left, but a lot of them actually give religious ideas. Um, I don't know that that's the case, given the fact that um, Joshua says specifically that Terah worshipped other gods. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of hard to say. So we don't really know why Terah left. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that the land of Canaan was, was a bountiful land. We know that um, later on. We're going to look at that next week. That it was, it was a, a great land. It was a lush land. It was a land uh, in the time of the Hebrew, of the Israelites, that you're going to see is, is a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? It's a, it's a great land. It's kind of like uh, America used to be called the land of opportunity, right? And so Canaan might, may have been in that time kind of a, a land of opportunity. It was a place where, there, where much trade was done. And, uh, and so it's very possible that's another reason why Terah would have left. But the truth is, we don't know. We don't know why Terah left Ur and started towards Canaan. But we do know that he stopped in Haran. And in Haran, he died. And there in Haran, we know, we'll know later on, actually, that Nahor and his family eventually end up in Haran. So they end up leaving Ur at some point as well, even though they didn't come with him, it looks like, here at the beginning. 
So this is where we find Abram. This is where we find Abram. He's in Haran. He's in what, what, uh, what God's going to call here in a minute, his father's house. He's with his family. They've, they've accumulated wealth and, and he's, he's comfortable, right? He's, he's living here in Hanan. He has a life, Haran, he has a life here and everything's good from what we can tell. And here we have what we know, the only thing that we know as the first interaction between God and Abram. Of course, we know that God was instrumental in bringing him out, however that was. He was instrumental in bringing him out of Ur to Haran. But God, this is the first time that we actually see God communicating with Abram. Let's look at that, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. Now the Lord God, no Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. <clears throat> It's here in chapter 12, verse 1, that we see God's specific call to Abram being made. He tells Abram to leave his country and his family ties behind and journey to a place that he will show him. But then he follows up with somewhat of a, this, this somewhat vague call. You know, he says, leave everything that you know and go to a place that I'll show you. That's pretty vague, right? That's, that's a goal that's hard to, hard to know when, you've, when you're done. It's like your boss saying, uh, you know, just work really hard and I'll tell you when you've met the, when you've met the, de- the goal, right? I'll just, I'll let you know, all right? He says, he says, here's my call. I want you to leave everything that you know and I want you to go. I want you just, just to go and I'm, I'll tell you when you get there. I'll tell you when you're in the right place. But it's interesting. He doesn't just make this call. He also gives him a promise or a couple of promises. He doesn't just say, trust me. I got your back, you know. Just keep going. Everything will be good. I'll tell you when to stop. He gives him something to put his faith in, to put his hope in. He gives him a promise. Now, keep in mind, this is not the covenant, all right? This is not the Abrahamic covenant. We we talk about that a lot when we talk about covenants in Scripture. We've talked about the Noahic covenant recently. This is not the Abrahamic covenant. That comes in chapter 15, all right, so this is just a promise. It's easy to kind of get mixed up because it's, it's very similar to some of the things in the Abrahamic covenant, all right? But this is a promise that God is giving to Abraham as he's telling him to leave everything that he knows, everything that he loves, and go in a direction that he doesn't know where he's going, all right? So what is the promise that God is giving to him? Because I feel like as we look at these promises, I feel like we need to understand that God still works the same way today. And I'm not going to get into too, too much detail because I want you to talk about it some in your A and I time. But first we see God proclaiming that he would make Abraham a great nation, right? He says, and I will make, in verse 2, I'll make of you a great nation. Now again, what do we know about Abraham and Sarah? They're barren, right? They can't have children. Okay, so this is probably an interesting promise to Abram, Right? He's, this probably, you know, perked his ears maybe a little bit. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You, whose wife cannot have any children, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Whoa, that's, that's an interesting promise. Something that Abraham could not fulfill in and of himself, God was going to miraculously do on his behalf. So I'm going to make of you a great nation. But I want to look at the rest of the sentence. He says, you know, why is God going to make him a great nation? Why is God going to bless him and make his name great there in the rest of that phrase? What does it say? It says, so that what? So that you will be a blessing. So that you will be a blessing. God says, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to let you build wealth. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you a guy that everybody wants to know, basically. You are going to be a great man. But why? Not so that you can 
have all the wealth, not so that you can be proud of who you are, not so that you can look out and see all, the, all of your descendants. That's, that's not why. Why am I going to make you great? So that you can bless others. And I think part of that was partially physical, so that you could bless others physically. In fact, we're going to see that in the, in the chapters ahead, that, that because of his wealth and because of the, the, the largeness of his, his entourage and because of who he was, he was able to help people out physically, whether it was through giving, whether it was through war. And we're going to see some interesting things that, that Abraham does in, in the coming weeks. Uh, but God is going to enable him to be able to do those things so that he could help others. But even more importantly, he goes on and he clarifies it even more, not just physically, but spiritually. He says, he says I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I, I will curse. Why? And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who dishonor you. Basically, I'm going to protect you. My hand of protection is upon you. And those who deal rightly with you will be blessed. And those who do not deal rightly with you will be cursed. Because you are my chosen family, basically. You are my chosen line. And so I'm going to protect you. But why? He says, and in you all, get the right wording, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is he talking about? Hmm? Who is he talking about? Christ. You know, we, we've talked about this a lot. You know, Eric has a lot because he, got, he, he gets stuck with all the genealogies. Um, so we've heard this a lot. We've been reminded of this a lot as we've gone through these genealogies that God is preserving a line. He did it through uh, Seth. He did it through Noah. And now he's doing it through Abram. He is preserving a line to one day bring the salvation of the world through Jesus Christ. He says, not only will you be a blessing physically to others around, but you will be a blessing spiritually because in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed because through you, Christ will come. So what's Abram's response? Well, Lord, let me pray about it. Is that Abram's response? No. Verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go into the land of Canaan. Let's just stop there. They set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now we come to Abram's response, and God has made the call for Abram to step out in really what amounts to almost blind faith. You know, we, we might put that statement out there, but it, really it's not blind faith, is it? What's his faith in? His faith is in the promises that God had given him. His faith was in the promises that God had delivered. This wasn't just Abram being like, Okay, you called me, let's go. You know, it was, I've called you and this is what I'm going to do for you. Trust in that. And he did. Abram trusted in the promises of God and he obeyed. He left. We don't have any specific record of, of Abram's religious affiliations uh, prior to this. We know that his father was an idol worshiper again from uh, that Joshua passage. Uh, it doesn't specifically say that Abraham was, but that might be a, uh, a possible um, reality. We don't know. Um, but we see a hint here in the way that he responds to God that there is some desire to follow after him. Of course, I, I don't know how God specifically spoke to Abram. You know, I don't know. Moses got a burning bush, right? I don't know if Abram just heard a voice from the Lord. You know, that's kind of the assumption that I would have. I don't, I don't know how God went about conversing with Abram, but it was clear to Abram that this was the God and that his promises were worth trusting. 
And so Abraham obeys. Abraham and Sarai and Lot, at the age of 75, uh, they leave everything that they know. They take all their servants, they take all their possessions, they pack them up and they leave. I don't know how many of you have gone on a long trip with your family and probably a van um, that was laden down with, which, with much stuff. Maybe you got one of those car toppers for the top because you had too much stuff to fit in the back of the minivan. You know, that's kind of what I envision when I, when I think about Abram with all of this. I mean, here, he was already wealthy, you know? He, he, he already had servants, he already had possessions, and, and here he is, he's packing all this stuff up to go who knows where, you know? We just punch in our GPS because we know where we're going, right? And we get turn-by-turn directions and we're good. Abraham didn't have anything telling him where he was going to go. God said, I'll just show you. I'll show you when you get there. But here they all pack, are all packed up. And again, where are they leaving? They're leaving Haran. All right, this again is, is why I don't, I don't buy into the, the concept that he was called in Ur. Because the only time we see the actual call, where does he leave from? He leaves from Haran. I think scripture is just plain and clear enough that it makes sense. All right, so here he is in Haran. He's leaving, he's packed everything up. And where is he going? Where's he, where's he going to go from, from, from Haran? Come on now. Canaan, right? He's going to Canaan. That's the same place that Terah was going, right? Well, why would he go to Canaan? God didn't tell him to go to Canaan. But, you know, again, it makes sense. Those are natural trade routes. Some place that it would make sense for him to, to head off. I'm sure he probably assumed that if that wasn't where God wanted him to go, he'd tell him to go someplace else. But he heads toward Canaan. Abraham continues his journey and that Terah had begun. Again, while God is certainly moving in these decisions, this, this direction um, was not necessarily something that God specifically told him to go. So where is he going? He goes to Canaan. Let's pick it back up. In verse, where do we stop? At the end of verse four, five. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. All right. Let me read that again. They, where did they stop? They, went, they landed uh, through the land to a place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moreh. All right, where in the world is Shechem? All right, let's take our invisible map. We're gonna move it all the way over here. So now we're just dealing with Canaan, or it's kind of like this, Canaan, or eventually Israel. So if you kind of are familiar with your uh, map of Israel, that'll give you a little bit of an idea. Where is Shechem? Shechem is about here. So it's interesting, again, this is just something I find interesting. It's interesting that God doesn't stop Abram, Abram until he's pretty much right in the middle of what would become Israel. Isn't that interesting? I just find that interesting. So he, he meets him at Shechem. And God visits him and he says to him what? He says, this is the land. This is the land that I'm going to give to your descendants. This is the land that I, that I have promised. You have made it. You have met your goal. You are here. And all this wandering of him passing all the way, halfway through the land of Canaan, and he finally, God stops him and says, this is the land. This is what I'm going to give to you and your family. As we read on, we're going to see that Abram begins to settle here. <clears throat> Starting in verse 7, he says, "Then the oh, I'm sorry, verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. I skipped a verse here. It says, uh, after God says to him, so your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord there. So 
God comes and meets with Abraham says, this is the land I'm going to give you. How does Abraham respond? He builds an altar. He responds in worship, right? And then Abraham begins to settle the land. He moves between Bethel and Ai. And what does he do again? He builds another altar to the Lord. To me, it looks like, it looks as if Abram is now beginning to understand this relationship with the one true God. We see him beginning to go from potentially an idolater to one who has an intimate relationship with the God of heaven. And we see him offering worship. We see him offering praise. We, we see him with these altars, these sacrifices. And then he moves on again. It says, from there he moved to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent uh, on the west of Bethel and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. I think that's interesting. He called upon the name of the Lord. There was, there was a back and forth. There was a, it was more than just, it was more than just a, a signpost, right? This was a place that he worshiped, all right? So he called upon the name of the Lord. In verse nine, and Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. <laughs> You're like, what? What in the world is the Negeb? Is the Negeb? Well, basically, it's, it's, the idea there is that it's the south country. Uh, has kind of a couple of ideas. It's a southern part of the country. It also has the idea of a dry or desert place. So if you think about Israel or Canaan, you're going further south, further south, and then eventually you're going to run into desert. And then eventually desert's going to give way to another country, Egypt, right? Okay, so he's moving further south. So at this point, he's basically gone through the entire inheritance that God was going to give his offspring. He has walked through from the top to the bottom of Canaan. And so now we see him dwelling in Canaan and he's going to pretty much, we'll look, we'll look next week at a, at a brief difference, but for the most of the part, he's going to spend the rest of his years in the land of Canaan, living in the promised land. Now, he's not living there in a house. He's not fully settled. In fact, where, you know, even here it says that he's kind of moving around multiple places, right? He's really just, the Bible used the word sojourning, right? He's sojourning in the land of Canaan. It's not completely his yet. Now that's a lot of information. That's a lot of, you know, that's a, that's a great passage, but what in the world does it have to do with us, right? What does it have to do with us? I mean, that's, that's a fair question. Um, we're here this morning to... to to allow ourselves to be challenged. So what does this passage have to do with us? I think there's a couple of takeaways, um, at least that I have from this passage, and, and uh, maybe you have others, and, and if so, feel free to share those in a and time. But first, the first takeaway is that God continues to sovereignly move in the lives of men to accomplish his ultimate goal of redeeming mankind. You're like, okay, uh, we got it. <laughs> it seems like almost every week we mention something as a reminder of God sovereignly working through the acts and the lives of men to perform his redemptive plan, to bring it to pass. And you know what? I don't think we're going to stop reminding ourselves of that because it's important. It's important for us to be reminded, not just every Sunday, but every day what God has done. It's, I find it truly amazing to sit here and look at all these different things that God has done and the ways that he has worked in the lives of men. They're, they're all part of the gospel story. You know, a lot of times we, we like to start and end the gospel story at, at Mary getting pregnant and Jesus raising from the dead. We like to keep that. That's kind of like the gospel story to us. And yes, that's, you know, that's generally the majority of it especially from a, from a witnessing, witnessing standpoint. But as we grow in Christ, we need to be able to look at these Old Testament passages and trace what God is doing through history. Because as you do that, you will see much more fully and richly the wonder of the gospel. That's why we keep bringing it up. We're not just broken records. We want you to be in awe of God and what he has done 
to bring about our salvation. Secondly, though, I want to look at Abram's response. But in order to do that, you know, we kind of, we, we went through the passage, we, we looked at, you know, how he responded, but I want to jump over to a New Testament passage, one that you probably know very well, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. If I can get there. Hebrews chapter 11, we lovingly call this the hall of what? Faith, Faith, the hall of faith, right? We're going to start reading in verse 8. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. We'll skip a little bit here. But by faith, Abram opened, obeyed, sorry. By faith, Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And we'll skip down a couple of verses to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they, are, if they had been thinking that of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as, it was, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. Those first two verses says that Abraham obeyed and by faith he went out to live in the land of promise. And that's what we're seeing here. And that's what we're going to see even through the rest of Abraham's life, except for next week, is that uh, Abraham not only went to the land of promise, not not only trusted in those promises that God gave and went there by faith, but even by faith continued to live and dwell in this land that he knew that he would never specifically possess. He continued to remain there. He continued to live that nomadic lifestyle and even includes Isaac and Jacob in there as well. They continued to live in this land with the understanding that God was giving it to their descendants. Even though they never grasped it, even though they never had it, it was never theirs, they continued to obey. They continued to live by faith and trust God. Just as Abraham understood that God has something special planned for him and his descendants and followed after his calling into a bountiful land, we as followers of Christ must remember that there is a better homeland for us as well. Do you remember that often? There's a better homeland for us as well. The writer of Hebrews here says that, but but people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Say it's people who who speak as if they are, what does it say? They are strangers and exiles on earth. Is that how we live? Do we live as if we are strangers and exiles on earth? Or do we live as if this is our home? Do we live as if this is all there is? Abraham said, I'm just a stranger. I'm just a sojourner. I understand this is, this is not my ultimate end. Where is your homeland this morning? Is it one that you're looking forward to? Or is it just one you're trying to protect that has red and white stripes and a blue field and white stars? I'm not against being supportive of our country, but is that your homeland? As a follower of Christ this morning, is that your end goal? Or are you looking for a city whose foundations are built by God? What's your focus? What's your goal? Abraham didn't really have a a very clear goal. He knew that he was supposed to go someplace. He knew that... um, He knew that God was going to show him. He made a promise that that he was going to show him and he trusted that. He believed that. What's your goal? He obeyed, 
Are you? Do you live with the end goal in mind? Do you live daily trusting in the promises of God or do you fall back into the old ways? Do you go back to the old habits? Do you trust only in what you can see and feel? God has called each one of us to live a life of faith. He's called us not only to salvation by faith, but a daily reliance on him, not only for sustenance, but more importantly, for our spiritual growth. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15 says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Are you living today in the reality of the coming judgment? You say, I'm saved. I'm good. Where will you be at the end of that judgment? Will you be saved only as through fire? Or will you have gold and silver and precious stones to give to your king? Are you living today in the reality of coming judgment? God may not have called you this morning to leave your homeland and to travel to an unknown destination, but perhaps he's calling you to reach out to someone in your sphere of influence for the sake of the gospel. We are all called to something. The question is, are we faithfully following the call with the end goal in mind? I can't see heaven. I can't see those rewards. And neither can you. Just like Abraham couldn't see the promised land. He couldn't necessarily see his children. He didn't have any. He was already wealthy, but he wasn't anywhere near as wealthy as God was going to make him. Abraham couldn't see it, but he believed what God told him was true. And he obeyed. Are we doing the same? Do we really believe that the promises of God are true? Not just the promises of, of good things, but even the promises of judgment. The promises of, you know, if you do wrong, there's punishment. I, as a father, chastise my sons. Do we believe that? Or do we live as if God doesn't care? Do we live in a way that we are saying, I trust what you say is true. God fulfilled his promise to Abram. He stopped him right in the middle of the land that he was going to give to his descendants. And as we'll see in the chapters ahead, he's going to make him a great nation. He's going to make him a great name. He's going to give him this wealth. God fulfilled his promise to Abram and he will fulfill his promises to us as well. He showed himself reliable to Abram. And he will show himself reliable to us as well. One of the things that if you get to it in your A&I time that I'd like for you to do is think about those times that God has shown himself reliable to you. Remind yourselves, share where God has been reliable. He's proving himself reliable to us. And while it's good to mirror the faith of Abraham, Abram, we must ultimately shift our view from man to God. It is because of his faithfulness to us, as with Abram, that we can have full faith in him, no matter what he calls us to do. Abraham, yes, had faith, but it was because his faith was in the one true faithful God. Don't lose sight of that this morning. We don't put our faith in man we don't put our faith in our boss. We don't put our faith in our spouse. We don't put our faith in our parents. We don't put our faith in ourselves. Our faith must be solely and completely 
and the one, the only one who is faithful. And that is God. May God help us to walk by faith, daily resting in his promises as a faithful God and submitting to his direction in our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God. We thank you that you are the one true God as we've gone from the beginning of Genesis and see your marvelous creation. We see that you are God alone, that there is no other God. There is no equal to you. There is no one superior to you. You are God. And you are faithful. When you say that something will happen, it will happen. We may not know the time frame. We may not know exactly how it will work out, but you have always proved true. And we can rest in that promise. We can rest in that reality. And we thank you that for that, Lord. I pray that you would help us as we go throughout our daily lives, that we would rely on you, that we would trust in you, that we would have faith in you, not just for our salvation, Lord, but, but for our daily decisions. For those times when we feel like we can't win against the, this struggle with sin, I pray that you would give us faith to trust in what your word says, to obey it. And as James reminds us, faith without works is dead. Real faith will cause us to respond just as it did with Abram as he obeyed. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to just have faith in word, but that it would be faith in deed and that we would live out our faith in a way that glorifies you. Not so that we can pat ourselves on the back for the great things that we do, but so we can point to you and glorify you for the work that you are doing and letting us be a part of. Pray that you'd be with our discussion time, that you would help us to, uh, to share and to understand in an even deeper way how you are working in the lives of the people even here in this body. Pray that you would cause us to walk away with a greater love for you and a greater love for one another. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.